there, skeptics and true believers. My name is Maddie Murray, and this is Professionally Informal. A sticky summer's day in Shepherdstown, an eagle in a thermal is a circle around like a tire on a bike rolling down Columbus Street. The maple tree, an icon of the American ecology, covering coast to coast with different species, beautiful leaves in the fall ranging from red to orange to brown, to red to orange to brown again. Sometimes they get kind of purple, but that's really it. In the summer, they're green. Maple trees, they're beautiful. They're also what we're going to be talking about today. Because guess what, y'all? It's March, and you know what that means? Huh? Huh? It's syrup season! That's right, it's that really special time of year where we get to harvest sap from maple trees and make our own maple syrup! Yes! Y'all, that is so exciting. I am so excited. I am really, really excited. And we're going to talk about it. And here's the best part, y'all. It's not that hard. You can do it at home. All you need is a maple tree that's, you know, at least 12 years old, and you're good to go. Now, if you don't have one of those, you might be thinking, like, come on, that 12 years is a long time to wait. But guess what? I'm going to tell you a secret. You can tap all sorts of trees. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. We'll get to that in a little bit. So normally I'd like to start with a bit of a history of maple syrup, but uh, I am not going to do that today because here's the thing. Indigenous people have lived in on the North American continent for a, a long, long time. They had shit figured out way before us colonizers showed up here, and uh, they knew what they were doing, including what they were doing when it came to making syrup and collecting maple sap. But here's the problem. In going through, in going through uh, sources and trying to find a good, solid history to share with y'all, I was having trouble finding sources that wasn't told through the lens of the colonizers. And if I'm going to share with people the history behind the maple syrup industry and how we discovered it and how we first tapped it and cultivated it, I need to do that story justice which means I need to find sources that aren't through the lens of those colonizers. I need sources that I know are true and reliable, and those are out there. I'm just having trouble finding them. And so probably on another day, in a different episode, I will talk about the history of maple syrup and how people figured that out, because it's really cool. But today, I am not going to, because I don't feel like I can do that story the justice that it deserves. It uh, won't, won't be serving me any good, it's not the story you deserve, and it's definitely not the story that the Indigenous and First Nations people deserve to have told. Because they were here and they did it first. And so that's the story that I want. So we'll come back in another week and talk about that. So that means I'm just going to start with how you're just going to go out and make maple syrup. Let's go! So we're just going to start today, here and now with your tree. Step one, 
it's the pre-existing condition that you need to make syrup is you need a tree that will give you sap. Most often, this is a maple tree. And most often within that, it's a specific kind of maple known as a sugar maple. So here's the thing about identifying sugar maples. Maple season, tapping season, sugaring season, all different terms for it, happens in late February, early March, depending on where you live, what the climate is like there. And in late February and early March, there's one really big thing that trees are missing that would normally really help us out with identifying them, and that's the leaves. There are no leaves this time of year, and for people like me who that's how they first learned how to identify trees, it can make picking out a sugar maple really, really hard because maple trees tend to look a lot alike except for their leaves. So if you are seriously doubting your identifying skills, but you know you have a maple tree in, say, your backyard, I'm going to tell you a secret. You can tap it as long as it's big enough. It'll probably be fine because most maple trees will give you good sap for making syrup. It might not be as sweet or you might need a little bit more to get the same amount of syrup, but it'll still be a-okay. So then how do we identify sugar maples in the winter? Well, there's a couple of ways. Uh, the first is you can look at the bark. This can be hard though because it's not the most distinct bark. Sugar maple bark tends to be, you know, lighter sort of on the ashier gray side and tends to peel vertically off the tree. At least not really, but that's what it looks like. So if it looks like there are big flakes of bark coming off, but they're still attached and they're nice and thick, it could be a sugar maple. I don't know. You could also look at the twigs, the branches on the tree, if you're able to access or reach those. Uh, the trees that I work on, all those branches are way too high, so I never actually see them. But the buds on the tree for a sugar maple will look a lot like little, 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 little tiny pine cones. They're really, really cute. Tiny, tiny little pine cones sticking straight out from the end of the twig. Uh, this I'd like to contrast with the red maple, which looks very similar to the sugar maple, especially during uh, sugaring season. The bud on the end of the sugar maple, or on the end of the uh, red maple, has somewhat of a pine cone structure as well, but the scales, the little I don't know, I call them scales because they remind me of dragon scales. But the little parts of the bud are a lot bigger and there's more of them. So the buds are the same size, but one has a ton of scales and one has a lot fewer scales. You want the one with a lot more scales. That'll be your sugar maple. Okay, so you've identified your tree. You've got a maple tree in front of you. Next really important thing, and this is really the, the vital thing that you need to remember to ensure the health of your tree, is you have to make sure that the tree is old enough. You have to make sure it's big enough to handle the maple syrup tapping process because in the process of making syrup, collecting the sap, we have to drill a hole into the tree which does cause a small injury to the tree. We have to make sure that tree is well established enough to be able to heal itself and to survive into the next season as well as able to produce enough excess sap to have us borrow some and it not feel any ill effects from that. So typically you want a tree that is between 10 and 12 inches in diameter. I tend to err more towards the 12 side because it's uh, safer. It's a little bit older, a little bit more established, but you can do 11 or 12. If you're really not sure about the ID, I'd say err more towards the sides of 12. 
And I'm saying diameter, and when I'm saying diameter, that doesn't mean the big leafy crown on top. That means the diameter at breast height, or the DBH. DBH is used in forestry uh, to measure, essentially, get a standard measurement of the diameter of a trunk at a specific height. Essentially, the height of the breast area of a full-grown man. I'm not a full-grown man. I am a very small person. Uh, so for me to try and get the standard measurement, I usually take it around my head, uh, at about my head height to see how wide the tree is. I can't remember what the specific height is for where DBH is supposed to be taken, but if you're an average-sized human, give that big old tree a hug with your measuring tape, and you will be fine. And then it's time to start the fun part. Okay, you have your maple tree. You know it is the correct size. It is the correct diameter to be able to withstand the tapping process. Now you start the actual tapping and collecting process. Woo! Okay, so here we go. First things first, you gotta take a drill and you gotta drill a hole into that tree, but you gotta be careful about it. It doesn't need to be a really big hole. In fact, they're uh, usually about 7 sixteenths of an inch in diameter, so not real big at all. And you want to drill that hole an inch, inch and a half, two inches deep. Sometimes if it's a really big tree and you really know what you're doing, you might go up to three inches deep. But that's, uh, you want to be careful with that. That's pretty deep. And you want to drill this hole going slightly upwards as if you're making a slide for stuff inside the tree to come out of. And because the hole doesn't go completely through the tree, we're not destroying the tree around in a circular manner, we're not uh, drilling holes next to each other, giving the tree a weird bracelet. It'll be just fine. You see, the sap flows in the uh, closer surface levels of the tree. So if we were to, say, drill holes right next to each other and make a circle around the tree, that would probably kill it because we'd be suffocating it. We'd be cutting off that area of nutrient flow. But one hole going only an inch to two inches deep, the tree will be just fine. Okay, so you have your hole. The next thing you need is your spile. Spiel, spile. I'm pretty sure it's spile. I just, I call it the maple shoot, or the maple slide, or the drippy drip. It's uh, kind of like a plug that you put in the tree, but not a plug. So a spile has a little curved end, sort of like a chute or a slide, and then one end that is more tubular. And what you do is you take that and you stick it into that hole that you just made and you push it in nice and deep. Uh, sometimes you have to use a hammer to really get it in there. And that will be your exit point for your sap. These can be made of plastic or metal. Uh, they've even been made of tree bark before. Um, and they allow your sap to be deposited straight into a bucket. So most spiles that you'll buy commercially will have a hook attached to them. If yours doesn't, uh, you want to get a hook because on that hook you can place your bucket. And that bucket is super important because that is what is going to hold your sap. That's a key part. You don't want anything bad to happen to that bucket because if it, I don't know, gets a hole in it or something, or if it's sitting on the ground, then animals can get to it. You're going to lose all your sap. And you don't want that. So the sap will flow through the spile right into the bucket. Just do a nice drip, 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 drip. And fill her on up. 
depending on the day and on the weather, it can take, and the age of the tree, it can take varying amounts of time to fill this bucket. Uh, what's really interesting is we've got some trees that are all in the same area that I've been working with recently. One of them is filling at a really fast rate. We got six gallons of sap out of it in only three days, which is insane. And this other tree that's like 15 feet away from it, we've gotten maybe, I don't know, a gallon and a half out of it in about a week. So some trees will be faster than others. I don't have a good reason as to why. But just remember that, especially if you're tapping multiple trees. If one of them is not filling as fast as another, it might not be your fault. In fact, likely it might just be that the tree is different from another tree. And also you want to be putting these holes at a comfortable position off the ground. I forgot to mention this. I uh, hope it would be implied. When you're drilling your holes, you want it to be at, you know, just a nice comfortable height where you can lift up a heavy bucket off of the spile and dump it into another bucket. Just nice, nice good height for that. Okay, so you've tapped your trees, you've collected your sap, and now it's time to make maple syrup, everybody's favorite breakfast condiment. Except for mine. I, guys, I really don't like real maple syrup. I like fake maple syrup, but that's it. Um, which is really awkward to be educating a group of folks about maple syrup, and they're all really excited to try it. And then they're like, how is it? And then you gotta be like, it's great! But really, you didn't try any because you don't like it! I'm living a lie! But I still think it's really cool and fun to make! So that's why I'm, you know, recording this episode. So you've got your buckets of sap. A really important thing to remember is tree sap can go bad. It can go rancid and disgusting and smelly. Y'all, rancid sap is one of the worst fucking smells out there. It is absolutely vomitous. So, yeah, strain your sap. Make sure you get everything out of it. And it also makes life a lot easier when it's time for cooking! The magical alchemical process of turning your liquidy, watery, relatively unflavored sap into that beautiful golden concoction known as maple syrup. It's incredible, it's fucking magical. Small children love this process because it's buck wild, y'all. It takes 40 gallons, 40 goddamn gallons of sap to make one gallon of syrup. 40 to 1 ratio, y'all. That's insane. But here's the thing. Part of the reason why we use sugar maples is because some other trees might have ratios of over 100 gallons of sap to make one gallon of syrup. They just have that much water in their sap. So 40 to 1, I guess, isn't that bad. I, I mean, I guess it's fine. It's got a lot of boiling to do, but not as much as if you're trying to make sycamore sap. So here's what you do. You got your nice filtered sap. You're going to want to make a campfire. Please, for the love of all things holy, do not start your sap boiling process inside your house, folks. You will regret it. You will most likely be miserable. 
And you will most likely never want to make sap again if you start your boiling process inside, so please don't fucking do it. Because here's the thing. When you get from 40 gallons of sap to one gallon of syrup, you gotta boil off a lot of stuff. You gotta boil off 39 gallons of shit that you don't need. Do you want that at your house? Do you want that coating your walls and your loved ones and your pets? I don't. It's sticky and it's gross. Wet and sticky is very icky. Sticky and wet makes mommy upset. So that's why we do it outside. A nice classical looking process over a, uh, could be like a, a propane fueled, uh, I don't know, fire thing. <laughs> or over a wood burning stove, or my absolute favorite, over a campfire. You take your sap and you put it in a nice big wide pot so that it has plenty of surface area. And you put a fire under it. And you just let it boil, and you keep that fire going, and you keep that fire going, and you keep that fire going, and then you keep it going a little bit more, because 39 gallons is a lot to boil off, until eventually you will see the magical process of this liquid in the pot disappearing, and what's left becoming thicker and starting to become a nice brown color. So as this is happening, if you're like, hmm, I've got a lot of sap here that I want to keep boiling, but I don't have room in my pot, here's what you can do. Wait till some of that first uh, dump of sap sort of evaporates off, and then just add in a little bit more of the unboiled sap. You just want to do it slowly and carefully to make sure you don't break your boil. <laughs> That's a weird turn of phrase. I don't like that. Uh... <laughs> And you can do that and it'll boil off and it won't affect the sap that's already in there that is more boiled off. As long as you do not break the boil. Set it again, folks. God. After a while, and depending on how much uh, sap you're boiling, how controlled your, uh, your heat source is, after, so after just basically a while... This is very much a uh, you gotta do this by what your heart tells you sort of situation. The sap in the pot will start to become darker and the bubbles will start to get a lot smaller. And that, folks, is when it is almost time. This is the crucial point. You have your special sap. It has been distilled, evaporated down from a huge amount to a much smaller amount, and now it has started to change color. This is when you get to take your sap inside the house. Welcome to civilization, almost syrup. And so you want to take a smaller pan and basically put it on your stove to finish your boiling because you can control it a lot more, you can protect it from the elements, and you can monitor it a lot more close than if you were doing it outside, especially because this is such a long process. Who knows, maybe by this point in the day, the sun has gone down a bit. It's starting to get a little bit dark. It's starting to get a little bit chilly. Take it inside and finish it off. Most of the water is gone by now, so it won't make your house a uh, literal hell death sauna from uh, the forest. And and when it's done exactly, you'll, you'll have syrup hot and ready and available for you to go right away. So you put it on your indoor stove and you keep it boiling. You want to have a candy thermometer on you and in the syrup, 
not on you taking your temperature. You want to have one with you pretty much the whole time during this boiling process, but you want it in the syrup pretty much constantly once you put it on the stove. What's going to happen is your sap, it's going to reach 219 degrees. At this point, something magical happens. A fairy shows up and then poof, your sap is now syrup! Really though, that's just like the final cooking stage. That's when it's uh, enough water is gone and it's thick enough and it's good and pure enough to, you know, eat and consume and taste good. So at this point, you want to filter it another time because there still might be little tree bits or bugs or something gross in there. So you want to put it through a uh, nice, nice, nice fine filter or and or I guess some cheesecloth. And then you can put it into jars and refrigerate it. That's important. Don't leave it out. It will go bad even though it's cooked. Or you could just eat it right away. Because what you have in front of you right there is syrup. That's, that's it. You did it. You tapped the trees. You got some buckets of some weird looking water. You boiled it. And now you've got maple syrup. Y'all, that's awesome. That is something that is so cool about this for me. And the thing is, you can do it in your own backyard if you have maple trees. It's that simple. I mean, sure, does it require a couple tools? Yes. And does it require the time to sit and watch your syrup boil? Also, yes. If you don't want to constantly sit and watch a fire to watch it boil, you can get uh, large evaporator pans that are propane powered and will just boil it off for you. That's something we do a lot because tending a fire all day is, um, it's not always our highest priority. So if we've got a lot of sap and we got to cook some of it, just put it in the evaporator and it'll be fine. It's sap. It's syrup. It's awesome. And now you might be asking yourself, hmm, hey, how do people do this on a big scale, on a commercial scale? So here's the thing. It's almost exactly the same. They just have to collect it a little bit differently. So I'm going to briefly talk about commercial sap production, which is very similar to traditional sap production, just that you have to be able to gather a lot more syrup, a lot, or a lot more sap, pardon me. You have to be able to collect a lot more sap a lot quicker. So what they do is they take tubing and they take holes. So instead of the, instead of the traditional spiel and bucket, spile and bucket method, they connect tubes from the holes that they bored in the tree and take that tube and connect it to another tube and connect it to another tube and connect it to another tube and they'll connect all those tubes to a vacuum and this vacuum will lightly help pull the sap out of the maple trees but not so strongly that it's like i don't know instant dehydrating the trees you know but it can actually help double your sap yield if you're using the vacuum method which is real cool and so all these tubes, they travel and all the sap travels down from the maple grove and it collects in the sugar house where it is put into a very, very large container and it is strained on a large scale and evaporated on a large scale and boiled on a large scale and bottled on a large scale in exactly the same way as I'm talking about here. Sure, they might use a larger, more commercially available uh, sort of evaporator, but it's still the same thing. It's still you're getting sap out of the trees you're straining it, you're boiling it, you're straining it, and you're bottling it, and then you're shipping it off. Which is awesome. There's so few mass-produced things where you can look at it and be like, that, that's how it's done. I know how it's done. And it's done exactly the same way as you would do it at home, except with a couple small modifications. And it's done in a way that we know is not going to harm the trees. 
if you're trying to find a way to have one of your favorite treats in a way that you think is maybe more sustainable or you want to have a greater connection to your food and where it's coming from, try making your own maple syrup or your own sycamore syrup or your own birch syrup or your own walnut syrup because, y'all, the process is the same for all of them. You go, you find that tree, you tap that tree, <laughs> and you collect that sap, you strain it, you boil it, you strain it, and you're good to go. It's not that hard, and it's really cool, and then you can show up at the next family gathering and be like, Oh yes, you know, I've just been collecting sap to make my own maple syrup, would you like to try some? And then everyone will think you're so fucking cool, and kids will think you're some magical frickin' druid. That's 100% true, uh, guaranteed, refund if you're not satisfied with the not enough kids thinking you're a druid. It's one of the most fun parts. And hey, if you're like me, and you really don't like maple syrup, you could still do it and just give it to people as a gift. Syrup is real freaking expensive. So just be like, happy birthday, here's some custom syrup! And then they'll feel all warm and fuzzy inside. Maple syrup. It's delicious, arguably. It's easy to make, and it's a cool science project. And you can do it in your backyard, if you have the right kind of tree. So I guess that's a little disclaimer. And that's going to about do it for us today here, folks. But before we say farewell for now, a big thank you to Josh Woodward for the use of his song, Learn to Fly, as the intro and outro of our program. Hey, we'd love to hear from you. If you have any fieldwork failures or any questions, any stories that you want to share with us, shoot us an email at professionallyinformal at gmail.com. Again, the email is professionallyinformal at gmail.com. Or hey, if you're more of a social media type, connect with us on Twitter. We're there too, at informalpod on Twitter. Because we're really new, any ratings and reviews really help us out. If you use iTunes or Apple Podcasts or whatever it is now, drop us a rating, drop us a review. That would really, really help us expand our audience. Or just share us with someone you like. Or if you don't like the show, share us with someone you don't like. I don't know. A little bit cruel, but we're still getting shared, so I don't really care. But until then, thank you guys so much for listening. And remember, learning isn't just for the classroom. See you next week. Sprout and lift you off the ground